You are listening to Mission Outlook, podcast that changes your outlook on mind. Hi everybody, this is Pietro Rossini, Saveria Missionary. I'm going to introduce my next special guest. She is Leili Meparian. She is an African and Women Studies Scholar, uh, especially uh, about womenism at Wesley College, where she is also a professor there. She is Baha'i Faith and uh, she is involved in racial justice uh, problems. So we have a lot to talk in this interview. <laughs> Just let's start. And if you are interested in these topics, stay with us. So let's start. Hi, Lily, and welcome to my podcast channel. Hi, Pietro. I'd like to start this interview from your faith. The Baha'i faith, maybe not many people know about that. So it's important to introduce the faith for everybody. Uh, what are the main pillars of your faith? Sure. The Baha'i faith is a world religion whose purpose is to unite all the races and peoples of the world and to establish a civilization founded on justice, equality, and unity and diversity. Baha'is are followers of Baha'u'llah, who we believe is the promised one of all ages and also the great spiritual educator of our time. Someone once asked Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, what is the object of life to a Baha'i? And his response was that the object of life to a Baha'i is to promote the oneness of mankind. The Baha'i faith was born in the mid-1800s when Baha'u'llah began sharing his divine revelation with the world. He stated that, quote, my object is none other than the betterment of the world and the tranquility of its peoples. The well-being of mankind, its peace and security are unattainable unless and until its unity is firmly established." Unquote. That's one of my favorites. He also wrote that the fundamental purpose animating the faith of God and his religion is to safeguard the interests and promote the unity of the human race and to foster the spirit of love and fellowship amongst men. That's another one of my favorite quotes. As you probably already know, the Baha'i faith has no clergy, but rather we have these elected nine-member councils that guide the affairs of the Baha'i community at local, national, and international levels, with, of course, the Universal House of Justice being the one at the international level. And we have an extensive body of writings by Baha'u'llah, the Bab, Abdul Baha, as well as prolific guidance from Shoghi Effendi and the Universal House of Justice. Based on all of this, the Baha'i faith, which has around 7 million adherents or so around the world on all continents and virtually every country, is involved in an ongoing collective enterprise to foster unity, develop human capacity, and plant the seeds of human spiritual material prosperity on a global scale. People might be interested to know that the largest Baha'i communities in the world are in India, Kenya, Vietnam, the DRC, the Philippines, Zambia, South Africa, Iran, and Bolivia, in addition to the United States, which also has a very sizable Baha'i community. It truly shows the global reach of the Baha'i faith and the way that it has attracted adherents from diverse cultures and continents. Given its long-standing global focus, the Baha'i international community is also represented at the United Nations as an NGO with general consultative status. People who want to know more about the Baha'i faith, of course, can go to our official website at baha'i.org. Very clear and complete summary of your faith that now I think many people know that Baha'i faith is about unity of the human race 
And uh, this is the topic of this conversation. So I'd like to talk about uh, anti-racism, how uh, Baha'i faith uh, has an answer to these questions very uh, important nowadays. But before talking about that, I want to ask you why you choose this way. What fosters you to um, embrace uh, the Baha'i faith? I was raised in a Baha'i family. My parents, a white farm boy from Wisconsin and a black inner city girl from Atlanta, became Baha'is in college in the 1960s and met at a Baha'i gathering while my father was traveling. They actually married in 1962 at a time when interracial marriage was only legal in seven states of the U.S. with the understanding that by marrying and raising an interracial family, they were doing something concrete to advance racial amity and the unity of humankind. Of course, they also loved each other, but you know, they were social justice oriented and this to them was a kind of contribution. So thus, I was raised in an atmosphere of noble ideals surrounding race, diversity, and human unity. The faith deeply imprinted on me in so many ways, including cementing me in a commitment to serving humanity and a passion for fostering harmony among diverse people. When I was a young adult, I stepped away from the faith for a time. I was sort of anxious to explore other avenues and test my faith and see how other people think and all that. But in the end, I returned to it even more passionate about the new path that I felt that Baha'u'llah was providing for humanity. And I was very excited about the innovations in social change that were emanating from the Universal House of Justice and its various auxiliary agencies. Particularly exciting to me was the Institute process, which is a pattern of activity that had evolved out of some Baha'i educational innovation in the country of Colombia and had now by this point been adopted by the worldwide Baha'i community. In essence, um, this institute process is based on universal participation in study circles that introduce people of all backgrounds to the fundamental concepts of human spiritual identity, the purpose of life, the power of prayer and holy scripture, the nature of life and death, and ways of building unified, inclusive communities that cultivate people from all walks of life into protagonists for individual and collective well-being. And at the heart of this model is practicing service in collaboration with others. It's a really amazing and elaborate model of human and community development that's still evolving and anyone can participate, whether Baha'i or not. So of course, I've been participating in a number of these study circles for a while and it just amazes me um, you know, what they contribute to in terms of my growth as a spiritual being, as a person, but also as a participant in society and someone who is always trying to work for humanity's betterment. So, of course, I'd like to invite people, all of your listeners, to check out Baha'i Study Circles and maybe participate. Lily, you sound very enthusiastic about your faith. And this is a nice uh, testimony for everybody, <laughs> really. Um, as you said, uh, in our life, Sometimes it happens that we leave our uh, faith of origin because we want to discover other paths. And then maybe we come back to our origins, be, but more inspired, more motivated to, um, to move on on this, uh, on this way. But I'd like also to move on in our conversation. So... Uh, Lely, you are very involved in uh, social racial justice uh, movement and uh, work. What is the role that you play in all of this? That's an interesting question. 
Because of the identity that I was born into, that is being an interracial person of black and white heritage or parentage, I've always felt like I've stood at the crossroads of two communities and I've always felt like a bridge person. I feel like this position has afforded me knowledge and insight that I'm obligated to use for the benefit of race relations. In my career, I've focused on race and other forms of social identity from the beginning, with a particular emphasis on the relation between identity and the social context. My understanding is that both human identity and the social context have to be simultaneously optimized so that human well-being commences on one side and social justice commences on the other. They are just inextricably tied together. These two things are so intertwined and as a Baha'i who's also a developmental psychologist and a scholar of Africana studies and women's and gender studies, I have many opportunities to teach, write, and speak on these topics and attempt to participate in the discourses of society in a helpful way. So I suppose it's fair to say that the main way I participate in racial justice is as a scholar activist. Moreover, I know that in the Baha'i faith, you talk about uh, race amity. That is the special approach of Baha'i faith to the racial issues. Uh, may you tell us more about that? Race amity is essentially racial friendship. It's heartfelt accord between people of different races. Baha'is understand, as the scientific community also understands, that from a biological perspective, race is an illusory construct. It doesn't really exist. Yet, at the sociological level, the cultural level, even the psychological level, race is a powerful construct with real consequences and its effects are both constructive and destructive. Abdu'l-Bahá, who I mentioned earlier as the center of the covenant and son of Baha'u'lláh, began using the term racial amity to introduce the Baha'i position on racial matters when he visited the United States in 1912. At that time, Jim Crow ruled the day, and forced racial segregation and rampant racial violence were in full effect. During Abdu'l-Bahá's visit to North America, however, he wanted to set the wheels in motion in another direction. So he spoke about and modeled another way every place that he visited. That way was racial amity. Some highlights of that trip include visits to historically black colleges and universities, engagement with black leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois, who featured Abdu'l-Bahá as Man of the Month in the Crisis magazine, um, attending African-American conventions, racially integrating high society social events to which he had been invited, and visits to individual black Baha'is. He also showed special kindness to black children that he encountered along the way of his journey. Now, it might sound like from what I just said that Abu Baha's trip was all about, you know, um, visiting uh, black people and institutions and talking about race. He actually talked about a lot of other things, too. He talked about peace. He talked about gender equality. He talked about the principles of Baha'u'llah and, and so on. But it's important to note that racial amity was a big focus of the trip and a lot of the speeches that Abdu'l-Bahá gave during this time talk about racial amity or help us understand how to live it out. These gestures of Abdu'l-Bahá, some bold and some subtle, left an impression on Baha'is and outside observers alike, communicating that the religion of Baha'u'lláh would brook no racial exclusion, no racial animus, and no racial prejudice. Now, notably, Racial amity as a methodology differs markedly from more oppositional methods of fighting racism. Racial amity is rooted in an invitational approach, one based on genuine love and kindness, respect, curiosity, dialogue, and joint endeavor. And to carry out racial 
Amity, it requires patience, diplomacy, fortitude, courage, humility, wisdom, and discernment, all qualities that Abdu'l-Bahá had in abundance and modeled for others unceasingly. All Baha'is are encouraged to exhibit these attributes as they go about the work of dismantling racism and instituting racial justice. And I think you would agree that this approach is a little bit different than often the approach that's presented in the mainstream. The foundational approach to justice for Baha'is is always driven by love and the recognition of the innate nobility of all people of all backgrounds, as well as the recognition asserted by Baha'u'llah that without justice, unity is not possible. Yet, the pursuit of justice and unity must go hand in hand, and Baha'is understand that individuals, communities, and institutions must all be involved. So that's sort of a summary of our approach, although it's always evolving and individual Baha'is may be involved in different ways. Sure, this is a very unique approach to racial injustice. Um, I want to ask you, I'm wondering, what do you think about Black Lives Matter movement? What do you think about their approach to these issues? My personal view is that the Black Lives Matter movement is both brilliant and effective. The phrase Black Lives Matter conveys both the problem and the solution so succinctly because it centers anti-blackness in all its forms as the problem and elevates a humanity embracing pro-blackness as the solution. Plus, the Black Lives Matter movement is a great update of the civil rights movement. Um, Black Lives Matter was, of course, founded by women, and it takes black feminist and BIPOC LGBTQIA people issues and perspectives into account as well. It also takes the economic system into account, and it foregrounds a defining racial issue of our time, which is policing and the carceral state. So in the end, it offers a truly broad embrace of humanity, even though a lot of people don't see that because they don't see past the word black, which for them is an impediment to the oneness and accord that is really behind it. What I think, though, is that people need to face up to the fact that that's part of why um, BLM is also spurring so much self-reflection and self-work around whiteness among white people. It's making people have to step back and really analyze their role in this process. I like how effectively the Black Lives Matter movement utilizes social media and the virtual space, which is absolutely essential in this area. Uh, in this era, sorry, and I admire it for staying decentralized and very grassroots in its approach. This methodology reminds me of the methodology used by Baha'is in the Institute process that I mentioned earlier. It too is very decentralized and grassroots in its orientation. And while there are of course important differences, both recognize that it is the time in human history to enact existential equality of all people and not just talk about it. And that's something that I wish that, you know, we could all talk more about. We have heard many times the slogan, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. What I'm wondering about uh, Black Lives Movement, and I want to ask you uh, this question. Uh, they use the way of the protests, and sometimes these protests may be also violent. So what do you think about uh, this violence in the protests? And uh, if there is another approach that uh, these movements may use to... Uh, demonstrate demonstrate the importance of social racial, racial justice. Protests raise awareness. They help galvanize people around the cause. They show critical mass to the powers that be. So in this sense, protests are useful and necessary. But for me, there are also paradoxes inherent in protests. 
I see the popular symbol of protest, the raised fist, as an illustration of these paradoxes. People are often protesting for justice, for peace, dignity, respect, or dialogue, yet protests themselves are typically oppositional, employing deeply pugilistic rhetoric, for example, struggle, or fight, or beat, or win, which presents, to me, a means-ends problem. I'm a believer that the means of pursuing social justice objectives must be aligned with the ends. And you, you, know, you can't achieve peace unpeacefully. You can't achieve unity oppositionally. Uh, you can't achieve dialogue by shouting in people's faces, or you can't achieve dignity with undignified behavior. So, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, at the same time as Martin Luther King Jr. famously opined, and I agree with him, a riot is the language of the unheard. Many, many people in the world today are painfully unheard. They're suffering, they're struggling for survival, whether physical, economic, or psychological, under the most psychically dehumanizing and brutal conditions of the modern era. So I totally get that. Voices must be raised. But concurrently, other methodologies of social change must be at the ready and working in parallel. Among these methods must be those that knit the fabric of human lives and communities together across lines of difference and increase the desire of people from all walks of life to embrace and pursue the well-being of their fellows and their whole communities. Of course, it's natural for everyone to pursue their own well-being, but the real advance in human life and society, from my perspective, will take place when people pursue the well-being of others as passionately as they pursue their own and become willing to make sacrifices for the well-being of others. This is why, for example, the Baha'i principle of the eradication of the extremes in wealth and poverty is so important. You know, we can look at this and we can see that these extremes of wealth and poverty generate social inequality. They generate health problems, mental illness, addiction, and suicide. They precipitate interpersonal violence, which includes domestic violence, intimate partner violence, gun violence, homicide. They generate economic crimes from petty theft on the one end to elaborate forms of white collar crime on the other, and also including all forms of corruption. They contribute to educational disparities, which in, in turn affects jobs, incomes, and the quality of neighborhoods, homes, and family life, among other things. So I say all this to show how one single principle of Baha'u'llah is tied to so many social problems and their solution. Protests alone don't solve all these things. We always need multi-pronged strategies that address multiple points of intervention in the ecosystem of life. We need all hands on deck. We need to be trying different things and learning from each other. Um, you know, I like the phrase that we use in the Baha'i faith about making change or about, you know, how we do things. And that is action, reflection, consultation, and study. All of those phases are needed. Very interesting. I totally agree with you. And uh, talking about inclusion, I have a last question um, about the interfaith dialogue, because this is a topic... Uh, um, <laughs> that we try to repeat again and again on this podcast, because uh, I think uh, from the interfaith dialogue uh, is the way for peace, for unity of the human, the human race, the only race that exists, in my opinion. And uh, so this is the question. For the Baha'i faith and uh, in your outlook on life, uh, what is interfaith dialogue? Interfaith dialogue has always been part of Baha'i life because we place so much emphasis on the oneness of God and the oneness of religion. We believe that there's only one God and that all religions come from that one God who sends divine educators to humanity to help humanity advance spiritually and materially. 
In past eras, these divine educators or manifestations of God, as we often call them, like Muhammad, Jesus, Buddha, Moses, Zoroaster, Krishna, and the like, came to different parts of the world to reach different populations so that ultimately everybody received wisdom from God. This era, though, the era inaugurated by the twin manifestations of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, is different because it is the one planet era, the era when the whole earth is conscious of itself as one homeland for all people and is adapting to that new reality. So many scientific and technological innovations have made one world possible since the mid-1800s, from airplanes to television to the internet. The world has contracted into a single neighborhood. As Baha'u'llah famously wrote, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. So in terms of religion, the world's religions are part of this neighborhood's diversity, part of the collective brain trust of humanity. Interfaith dialogue, then, is one way that we can access and build on this brain trust together. In fact, there are a few more meaningful ways to build and strengthen community than to have the kinds of elevated conversations that interfaith dialogue can evoke. For example, praying and meditating together, sharing from sacred scriptures together, discussing moral issues together, thinking about social action in ways informed by our diverse faiths, and serving the community together, all of these are the fruits of interfaith dialogue, not just talk, but action also. As Baha'is like to say, faith is conscious knowledge expressed in action. Baha'is established World Religion Day, which is observed on the third Sunday of January each year, and Baha'is often participate in things like the UN's World Interfaith Harmony Week and the Parliament of the World's Religions. The Baha'i International Community at the UN also frequently puts out major statements to bring faith-informed perspectives to major global conversations such as world peace, human rights, the environment, economic justice, gender equality, and the global future. For me personally, in my own town, I participate in a multi-faith collaborative with the Open Spirit Center, um, and that's been a big part of what I do you know, in my off-work time. It's important to me to bring my diverse community together and be part of an organization that's building bridges and helping us all to share a about our diverse faiths and the wisdom that it brings. So it's something that I really enjoy. Thank you, Lily. This was a very rich interview. And before uh, leaving this conversation, I, I'd like to ask you to leave a message for our listeners. Sure. I'd actually love to just end with a prayer from Baha'u'llah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer that. Lauded be thy name, O Lord my God. Darkness hath fallen upon every land, and the forces of mischief have encompassed all the nations. Through them, however, I perceive the splendors of thy wisdom, and discern the brightness of the light of thy providence. They that are shut out as by a veil from thee have imagined that they have the power to put out thy light, and to quench thy fire, and to still the winds of thy grace. Nay, and to this thy might beareth me witness. Had not every tribulation been made the bearer of thy wisdom, and every ordeal the vehicle of thy providence, no one would have dared oppose us, though the powers of earth and heaven were to be leagued against us. Were I to unravel the wondrous mysteries of thy wisdom, which are laid bare before me, the reins of thine enemies would be cleft asunder. Glorified be thou then, O my God, I beseech thee by thy most great name, to assemble them that love thee around the law that streameth from the good pleasure of thy will, and to send down upon them what will assure their hearts. Potent art thou to do what pleaseth thee. Thou art verily 
the help in peril, the self-subsisting. So thank you, Pietro. It's been wonderful to talk with you. No, thank you. Thank you, Leili, really for your availability for this interview that uh, I enjoyed so much. And thank you to you, all uh, our listeners. I hope that Leili's words uh, may help us in this week and in our life to change our outlook on life because life is always a matter of outlook. <laughs>